welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and welcome to another week. Uh, this week, I have Nancy Hogshead Makar on, and she's CEO of Champion Women, which is an organization that advocates for women and girls in sport. Nancy has been an advocate for women and girls in sport pretty much her entire life since college. And she was an Olympic gold and silver medalist in the 84 Summer Olympics in swimming. And while she was at Duke University, she was um, sexually assaulted um, uh, by a stranger uh, when she was running across from one campus to another. And um, luckily she had great support there, um, but she's seen that not be the case in other circumstances. And um, that led her to doing this work. Um, She's worked at a large law firm. Uh, She's an attorney. I guess I didn't say that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And her, her educational credentials are just ridiculous. She went to Duke and then she went to Georgetown. Um, so anyway, she worked at a large, a large law firm advocating for women's rights, um, mostly to equal opportunity in sport and higher education, so Title IX stuff, and that moved a little bit into sexual assault um, cases um, in higher education as well, um, as Title IX has kind of shifted that way. And she was a professor of law for 12 years, which is pretty cool. So today she does a lot of work. Um, the last year or so has been on the prevention of uh, sexual abuse and child molestation. Um, this obviously has become a big issue after the Larry Nassar um, cases. And she was really a driving force behind the creation of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport and the Safe Sport Act. And her her next uh, <laughs> her next project is to completely overhaul the Olympic movement, which is a tall order, but I, I have no doubt that Nancy can handle it. Um, this episode is really interesting. It's really just a, a big education for me as I speak to Nancy. Um, and there are a lot of moments where I'm just sitting there not saying a thing because I'm learning so much. So I want to thank her for being on. I hope you all enjoy it. Um, uh, please know that we we do talk a bit about sexual assault and child molestation. There are no details provided, um, but I do want to let you all know beforehand in case these topics are, are going to be you know, uh, uncomfortable for you to the point where you won't be able to you know, function. Otherwise, uh, I think it's a great interview. <laughs> uh, can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Make sure you tweet at us at LTPF pod or send us a message on Facebook at LTPF pod. We're also on Instagram trying to figure that out still. So, you know, I don't know, tag us in something. That would be great. (laughs) Or you can always send an email. It's LTPF pod at gmail.com. All right, let's get on with the interview with Nancy Hogshead Makar. Hi, Nancy. Hello, Bobby Sue. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to start the way I typically start, which is by asking, how did you fall in love with sport? Oh, yeah, <laughs> that wasn't hard. <laughs> um, yeah. um, well, 
I should say, you know, swimming was my sport and I fell in love with swimming when um, my parents bought a boat and they wanted to drown proof the kids. And so they just wanted us just to do a, a summer swim, you know, and I was really lucky. My first coach ever was Eddie Reese. And Eddie is now a Hall of Fame coach who has probably had 50 Olympians. He's the head coach at University of Texas men's program. Wow. But he was he was probably 21 years old and just getting started. But, you know, he made it fun. So I loved swimming. How old were you when they put you into that swim program? I was seven. You were yeah. seven. And mm-hmm. from um, Florida, correct? From Florida, yeah. And I have to say for all the swim parents out there that it was no big deal. It was, I learned very good mechanics, but I did not train. I did, I, I, I was better than my peers because, because I'm Nancy Hogshead Makar. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but I, but you know, what, what I see seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old kids doing now is just inappropriate. They're going to get burned out. They're going to get injured. They're going to get sick. And so really it was nothing that was going, that was taxing. The whole emphasis was on good mechanics, good, good start. And, uh, and then having fun with my peers. It really was a great time. When did you start competing? Right away. But you know what, like I said, it was just like, I remember my first race. I didn't know how to start. I didn't know how to dive. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and also, I didn't know how to do a turn, a flip turn. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I was competing, but eh, you call that competing? Right. You know? right. Yeah. <laughs> um, when, it, at what period of time did you start actually training? Was that when okay. you got closer to high school or college? Well, we moved. And when we moved to Jacksonville, Florida, we were in Gainesville. Uh, my dad was a professor at the University of Florida. And when he moved uh, to go... Um, uh, being private practice here in Jacksonville. And, um, and there was another great coach. I, I have been very, very lucky. And his name's Randy Reese, Eddie Reese's brother. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Randy was really the one to kind of grab me by the back of the arm as he did to all of us. And he said, you know, Nancy, if you want to be great, you can be great, but you're going to have to do it. And so he, he actually, so we moved when I was 11, I would say by the time I was like 11 and a half, I would say it's like, he put me onto the A team, which is like, I was the youngest person by far. And, um, and, um, frankly, I really wasn't ready for it. And, um, but by the time I was 12, I was the best 12 year old in the country. And by the time I was 14, I was number one in the world for all women. So I started doing two-day workouts, yeah, right around, like, age 12. Yeah. That is insane. Um, <laughs> I, I, is. Like, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I had a brief stint of, you know, at the high school level being competitive running, but, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> that took until I was, like, 14, 15 <laughs> to even get me to start training. So I can't imagine being so young, but I guess, you know, with Olympic – um, sports that happens a lot with the, some of the individual sports, correct? The swimming, gymnastics, um, a lot of those. Yeah. yeah, for me, right right when I went through puberty, um, I, and I, the difference between like the year before I won nationals, or not the year before, the six months before I won nationals at at uh, I got fifth, seventh, and ninth at uh, at nationals the year before. 
And the difference was 20 pounds. You know, I just put on 20 pounds the way that everybody does when they go through puberty. And I, um, you know, just sort of, you know, became sort of more substantial. And that that made all the difference in the world. And you, um, you're actually, your first in at the Olympics, or at least training for the Olympics, was while you were in high school, correct? Yeah, at the 15, Randy Reese left Jacksonville, Florida, and I followed him to uh, train with him. Um, right, my my choice was, well, do I keep swimming, and 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 not have a great coach? Which, frankly, I think we all know that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. And or you know, you know, what do I do? So I I left home. My mom had to eat a lot of crow because she'd always said, no child of mine would ever leave home. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, here I was leaving home. But, you know, when you're in that situation, it's just, it's a different animal. Um, yeah. You were really only going to Gainesville, though, right? Well, I was going to Gainesville. It's yep. an hour and a half drive away. Yep. You know, I was too young to drive, so I couldn't just hop in a car and go home. Sure. Um, right? And... Um, you know, I would say I was home probably, I would say like once a month, maybe, maybe not quite that often. Right. Because, you know, swimming training is six days a week Mm -hmm. and the day that you have off, you're supposed to be resting and driving for say an hour and a half there, an hour and a half back is not my idea of anybody's idea of resting. No. (laughs) So, um, do you, how did they handle school with you at that during that period of time? Were you did you have tutors? Did um, I mean you're on a a collegiate campus and sure. you're so young? Um, right. How did how does that, that work? Right. So I came from Jacksonville Episcopal High School, which is a first class world, just you know an outstanding education. I went over to um, a public school in Gainesville, Florida, that um, was not as rigorous. And <clears throat> so it was not, it's not difficult to get a very, very good uh, GPA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I do have to say that, uh, and we always knew that I was going to go for the Olympics, so I had always taken one extra class. So in order for me to graduate from high school my senior year, all I needed was one credit to graduate. Okay. And so I took... Uh, <clears throat> I took um, AP Political Science, and I'm still good Facebook friends with uh, Miss LaFontaine, Lou <laughs> LaFontaine, uh, who was my teacher. She, and I ended up majoring in college in political science. Uh, but uh, so, you know, when I have to say, when I got to, to Duke, um, when I went to college, I really was behind my peers. It really, I had to struggle to, to catch up. And I did catch up, but, you know, it, it took me a while because I... I um, had not focused on academics the way my peers had when they were in high school. What, what caused you to be interested in political science? Um, I just like politics and I've always been somebody that cheered for the underdog. I've always been somebody that, um, you know, wanted to, um, um, help somebody that the power structure wasn't supportive of. So uh, um, I had some really good professors at Duke that sort of guided me into that. At first, I thought my dad's a doctor. So I thought, well, I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> and then I got I got a C in biology and I was like, oh, I'm not going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and plus, I, like, I didn't really like it. 
you know? Right. I didn't enjoy that the way that I really enjoyed political science. And um, so that was how I, I got into political science. I, one of my professors, I have to you know, give another shout out to Jean O'Barr, who's since retired. But uh, she was, I was a political science women's studies major, and she taught both political science and women's studies. And, um, and she was like a light bulb professor for me, right? When I learned about how sort of, and when I got into the women's studies program, I had always been very conscious of gender and being an outstanding female athlete and, and the, the issues and problems it created and the, you know, the, um, the, the, you know, how, how, how people treated the male athletes who are outstanding athletes differently than they treated me. And it sort of put that all in context for me. It really gave me a framework to think about how it was for me versus them and how I could make it better for all women. It almost sounds like you were wise beyond your years at, you know, a very young age um, to, to even be aware of that. Um, well, I think if you lived in my shoes, so I, um, if you Google my name and Google images, uh, there's, there's, there are some, um, you know, I, I was unusually muscular and I got told on almost a daily basis that this isn't what, well, these are not the words they use, but what they said was, you're not conforming to gender roles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, and I, what I heard frequently, which I still think is bizarro, is I wouldn't want to be in a dark alley with you. <laughs> like, what? I mean, like, I right? say that about really creepy men, not what? like strong women. In fact, I actually want to be in a dark alley with you because you could probably kick the ass of the creepy guy. <laughs> right? Right, right. Right. It's bizarre. But I, 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 with, I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I've heard that at least a thousand times. God, I wouldn't want to be in a dark alley with you. Like, you know, I, anyway, so so that I always thought that was weird because nobody was saying that to my my male peers who were twice as big as I was. Right. Right. And OK, so one time in practice, my coach, uh, you know, I beat one of the guys. I swam very fast in practice. And my coach says to the guys, hey, I can't believe that you guys are letting a girl beat you. And he meant it as a way to push them, mm-hmm. right? As a way to motivate them. But I pulled him aside. And now remember, I'm 16 years old. And I said, look, you're making both of our lives miserable. It just can't be that, that, that it's this huge deal about me being a female in the pool with them. We have to be teammates. And, you know, it's, you're not making it easy on me. And you're not making it easy on them. And, and to his credit, he never said it again. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's really yeah. great. I mean, I know a lot of people even not to say that today is really any better than in the eighties, but I know a lot of people would not heed that, uh, statement. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel lucky that he did. He did. I mean, it, look, look the, the truth is everybody in that pool wants to be the best in the world. Everybody who's training there was in that game, mm-hmm. right? We had, when I was 12, I've got a picture of it. And we have, we had like 20 of us that went to senior nationals. I mean, that is, that is, this is just a little high school team. Nobody was in college to have that many of us going to senior nationals. And so we're, we're all in the water four hours a day. We're lifting weights on top of that. 
we're running, we're doing what only swimmers could call dry land exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, so you don't do that unless you're really committed and real, you know, want to do well at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think he understood that, that, and, you know, I think everybody should understand that you would only say something that would be <clears throat> motivating and would, would, would forward the motion for everybody. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. We know um, Duke is, you know, one of those schools that you just go to because it's super easy. Uh, how, did, how, did you, how did you choose Duke? Um, so I had a brother that went to Harvard. And um, so, but I. But so your I'm family is full of slackers. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. My, my parents really never knew anything about swimming. Um, they, they still don't to this day, but they really appreciate and know and push on academics. So they always knew what my grades were, even if they didn't know what my swimming times were. And um, so they, they, they always charted that course for, you know, the academic course for me. Um, um, and I always did well academically. I, 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 I love academics so much. I was a professor of law for 12 years. Right. I, I, um, so, um, so, but, but, but if I, when I looked at the Ivy leagues, <clears throat> um, I, I couldn't find a place to give me any scholarship money. Mm. So, so now you're looking, okay, so who, well, first of all, let me just like pay homage to the law of Title IX, because had I been a mere two years older than I was, I would not have had very many or if any college scholarship offers. But my senior year was 1980. And uh, so all of a sudden, kaboom, the whole country sort of gets lit by a torch. And now I pretty much can go wherever I want to go. Um, so I... Um, um, I, I looked, I wanted a good education. I wanted someplace not so far away from home, like Stanford. And, um, and I wanted a smaller school. I didn't want to go to a, you know, a large state school. And so Duke was everything for me. And I'm, I, I love it so much that I've sort of indoctrinated my kids that like, it is the only school. <laughs> <laughs> How old are your children? I have a 17 year old son and I've got twin 12 year old girls. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. only have a little bit to live up to. That's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you were at Duke, um, you know, I I have read that there were quite a few things that happened there. You um, uh, you have survived your own sexual assault um, on campus, mm-hmm. and some of your either, and I don't know the details of this, and I, I apologize, but either one of your teammates or you and your teammates were sexually harassed and or assaulted by a coach. Sure. Yeah. My coach, uh, my Olympic coach, Mitch Ivy. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about how those experiences have influenced the direction that you've taken your career? Sure. Well, uh, well, first, um, uh, Duke, uh, my, my sophomore year in college, uh, was the first day of Thanksgiving break. And what normally is, we call it the social run. It's between <laughs> East and West campus. And like, literally, usually you're like, hi, hi, hi. And um, was, there just weren't that many people out there running. And this great big guy grabs me, swings me around. And uh, we fought for probably 20, 30 minutes in brush. Oh my I God. got really, yeah, really scraped up. 
And then I was raped for two and a half hours. Yeah. And it was about as awful and as humiliating and as degrading and as terrifying as I could make it. Like I couldn't exaggerate just how, um, how the name of the game was to humiliate me. It was not his own sexual pleasure. Trust me. Um, and he could like go back and forth between this is a date and I'm going to kill you. Right. <laughs> and, um, Anyway, so I, I, uh, I made it out of there, believe it or not, by crying. And as soon as I cried just a little bit, then I could tell that he liked it. And so I started crying more and he was out of there within 20 minutes. And I, I mean, he had been telling me all these things that he was going to do to me and how he was going to take me to a hotel and he was going to take me to. And for me to have lived, to have made it out of there is one of my great accomplishments. Um, um, yeah, no, I'd kind of lucked into, I had already tried everything else. I told him I was pregnant. I told him I had VD. I told him whatever, none of that was working. Um, so, uh, I went directly from there to the police station that was only like a block and a half away. I hitchhiked. I like stopped somebody and you can imagine I looked a mess. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was bloody and I had like twigs and everything in my hair and, I couldn't find all my clothes and everything was ripped. And so the guy was freaking out. So I get in the car and I would like realize like you just lived. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I went right before I went into the police station. Um, I gave this little talking to myself. I said, Nancy, now don't cry now because you've got to be believed. Now, Bobby Sue, how would I not be believed? <laughs> I mean, I, right. I'm right. I mean, yeah. I, Right. I'm I'm beaten up. I'm a student in very good standing at Duke University. I'm um, and, and, I, and I still have that thought. So for all the women out there that have that thought, like nobody's going to believe me. You know, I, everybody thinks that I think it's just universal. Right. So I went in there and thank goodness for all the feminists who came before me because they could not have been kinder, more considerate, nicer, um, you know, more like, you know, you need some water. Do you need you know, and, you know, I had needed to go to the hospital shortly thereafter, but they, uh, they could not, uh, you know, and, and, you know, if, if I had been raped in India, I probably would have had to marry that guy. Right. If I, if I had been raped, uh, I don't know, just 20 years ago, you know, they probably wouldn't have believed me. Um, if I had been raped, uh, in, in some other countries, it would have been so humiliating for my family that I would have had to leave them. And so, you know, right. So I didn't have any of that, which I'm really grateful for. Thank you, feminists, for making that, making the world so that, you know, the police officers, everybody was, was just downright kind to me. Um, so, um, yeah, then, um, and, and, and I would say it rocked my world more than just, um, it, in, in most ways, it rocked my world. Before then, I was pretty harsh person, even on myself. So even on myself, um, I, you know, would make myself work really hard and practice and whatever uh, and make myself study. And um, I, I got to a point after I had a great case of what we now would call PTSD. Back then, we just called it, you're going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so I, I had some 
really odd behaviors that uh, I knew were odd and yet I couldn't stop them. And I felt perpetually fearful. And what I'm grateful for is that the community wrapped me up and wouldn't let me fall. So I easily could have flunked out of college, easily. And mm -hmm. Duke University wasn't having any of it. They were, no, no, no. And they, um, they did all the right things that they were. They moved me on to Maine West. They dropped two of my classes. They let me take the next two classes, not until the spring semester. They, they let me drop my, drop my swimming requirements. So I got my scholarship, but I didn't have to swim. And so I really needed that break, if you will, to because I couldn't allow my mind to be alone. Believe it or not, academically, I really I thrived. Not only was I not swimming, but also I um, I had to keep my mind really sort of laser focused. But um, so um, but so so and and what I sort of ultimately what I got out of that was I, if you look again at those pictures of me, you would never think that it would be humanly possible for somebody to rape me without, you know, a machine gun. And he didn't have a weapon at all. So number one, um, um, and I, 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 you know, and, and I, so I never thought that I could have been raped. I thought that I was different than other women. Mm -hmm. I thought that because I was like you, Bobby Sue, I was smart and ambitious and accomplished and everything that you just said, like, you know, we were talking about, you know, wouldn't want to be in a dark alley with you. Right. Yeah. That was me. And so, so I realized that no, 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 this guy hated women and was angry at me because I was female and because I wouldn't have dated him because I would never have gone on a date with him. And he recognized sort of this stratification. And so, um, I, I, um, I realized that until it gets better for all women, it's not going to get better for me. That in other words, sexism isn't something that you can accomplish your way out of it. Like you're part of that team, right? No matter, no matter how, no matter, you know, what extraordinary thing that you do in your life, you're part of that team. And so you've got to make it better for our sisters. I, you know, it's interesting that you say that because so one of our prior guests and someone who's become a good friend of mine, Morgan McCall um, from Michigan. Uh, well, she didn't go to Michigan state, but she's one of the sister survivors from the Nassar. Um, uh, well, she was right. assaulted by Larry Nassar. Yeah. Um, she, this has become that same mentality that, that, that realization that um, her life is not going to get better um, and her way of coping mm -hmm. is to force change and okay. to, you know, and so I, I actually just saw her last, this past week on Monday um, because she, I happened to be in DC at the same time that she was for the congressional hearings on they were Tuesday, but I was, we kind of overlapped on Monday and we were chatting and, um, and it's oh, been, good for her. yeah. And it's yeah, been, yeah, yeah. it's been incredible. Okay, you know, I, I got to meet her there. She's, she's, I mean, she is, I'm so impressed by her every time I speak with her and I mean, she's 18 years old and, know. and I forget how young she is because she is, 
she does. She has that same fire that you and I both have with regards to we need to make this better for everybody. And um, so anyway, that's me diverging. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. I'm glad you did. No, I those those Nasser victims. I just uh, I tweeted out right before we we went on the air that, uh, you know, we need to really get on our knees and really thank them. I don't know that I could have done that. Uh, at, not only at their age, but also just at that level of recovery. Um, frankly, I, I don't do what I do professionally in order to recover. I do it because I have recovered. Right. Right. So it doesn't trigger me at all to hear their stories or to, and, and, and I, I know how to help them. I, I have the toolkit, if you will, right. particularly if they're at a school or whatever. So, um, but to be able to use this that to help them is is I just think that's extraordinary. That's they're way beyond anything I ever could have done at that time. I sort of would have dissolved. But they were they were able to be vulnerable and yet powerful at the same time, which I think is such a great combination that it changed it changed the world for I think the world for everybody. Oh, for sure. And I think as <clears throat> It's one of those, uh, I don't know how to say this, like twofold things. Like it's so terrible that there were so many of them, right? But right. because there were so many of them, they didn't feel alone. Yeah, um, right. And, and, when, and because of the deception that was involved, many of them did not fully understand or, or know that they were assaulted until some of these investigations and um, and people speaking out came to light. Right. So they were all kind of in the same place at the same time of um, coming to that realization. And so that's a, in a very terrible situation, a potentially a blessing to them um, to be able to um, recover maybe. And I I know for Morgan, we've talked about this, you know, she used to want to be a, um, an athletic, you know, a doctor in athletics. And she has really started to think about going into law. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah, well, no, I I actually will probably uh, make sure that you guys are very uh, well connected with each other, but she wants to be Angela Pavlik. Pavulitis, essentially, the uh-huh. prosecutor. So it's it's been interesting uh, speaking with her. Um, Good for her. Good for her. Can you um, can you talk a little bit more about um, your Olympic coach and the situation that um, you all went through with sure. him? And and again, you know, I guess you know those these terrible acts, you know, these assaults and, and the sexual harassment and misogyny that you've gone through have all, you know, pushed you, I'm guessing, into this career of yours where you are one of the biggest champions of um, women's equality and rights when it particularly in the area of sports and particularly in the area of protection of athletes from sexual assault, um, sexual harassment, et cetera. Right. So, um, so my coach gets me back into swimming 
and uh, and and I I decide it was kind of like a ball that dropped down and the ball bounced back up into my hand and I caught it that I wanted to swim hard again and I want to go for the 1984 Olympics. So when I was looking around the country on where to go, there aren't that many programs that are truly elite and uh, uh, are not associated with a school. So a school program has a different calendar than what an Olympian needs. And so I, I, I found one and I knew that Mitch Ivey had a terrible reputation, but I thought it would never impact me because I was too old for him. Well, sure enough, I get down there. <clears throat> He's having a relationship with a 16 year old. And, um, and he was very out about it. And so was she, this is my boyfriend. This is my girlfriend. I'm 33. She's 16. Oh my and yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I got a front row seat to see exactly how molestation happens. I got to see how it affects not just the two of them, but how it affects an entire team. And um, so um, at one point he started, I don't know, it was just this weirdness of like he was trying to use me to make her jealous and just bonkers. And so I kind of had to get my mojo, not from my coach, but get my mojo from my teammates. And fortunately we had, I had a lot of really great teammates uh, that, that, that I could rely on. Um, but uh, um, so, so having had that experience, um, I, I did not get into this work sort of on purpose, <laughs> if you will. Um, I, I started off uh, as an attorney doing mostly just Title IX work, making sure girls had the same opportunities to be able to participate in sport. And, um, but then Title IX started affecting, started impacting uh, uh, sexual violence in higher education. Mm -hmm. So I started getting more and more interested in that. And Lisa Simpson was raped by football recruits at the University of Colorado. And as the plaintiffs and defense lawyers had to get together and they had to, they named somebody to be a t their Title IX advisor for five years. So I got to work with the University of Colorado for five years. It was a wonderful experience. I learned every bit as much as I gave. And um, uh, but like there is a playbook to be able to help students in both high school and college who are victims of sexual violence, whether it's peer, whether it's a professor, whether it's teacher, um, from or from outsiders, right? There's like, here's what a school needs to do in order to keep a kid in school. And I had relied on Duke University to do all the right things to keep me in school. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew like what to ask. And I think the one thing that, that I, that if, if there's anything that makes me different, it is that, um, um, is that I'm okay talking about it. Right. So when somebody um, wants to share their story with me, it like, there's such a profound natural human reaction to get them to shut up <laughs> and get them to, um, you know, it'll be okay. Or just, you know, leave your pain here or you've got to forgive them or yeah. what, right. All those things that basically we're telling the victim, like, don't feel bad. And around me, um, what, what I just know what I needed to heal was I needed people who were okay with themselves and who could be a catcher's mitt and just get it, yep. just absorb, not, don't try to fix me. Don't, you're not my therapist. Just 
absorb. And like my husband is the best at it. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and anyway, so, so having that, you know, being able to, um, you know, I try to make it clear with clients and that uh, I am a lawyer, I'm not a therapist, um, but being able to, you know, you got to be able to hear the whole story. And uh, that anyway, so I started working in there. And then in 2010, I started getting the exact same calls. Only this time, the victim was in a club sport program. And then like there, there are no rules. Like, you know, if you look at a, at a, a swim coach or a football coach or any kind of coach who's, who's at a school, they, there are layers on top of them. There's the athletic director, there's the general counsel, there's the president or the headmaster or the, right? Right. You have these layers on top of them. At a club sport program, a lot of times the, the, the coach is the very top of that pyramid. There's nobody above them to tell them what they can and cannot do. There's nobody to, in, who is sophisticated to, to say, like, here's grooming behaviors, and you want to teach these eight-year-olds about grooming behaviors because they're going to leave you and go with another coach who may be a pedophile. Right. Right? So you, there's, there, there's none of that that exists. <clears throat> so um, I went to the Olympic movement, and I thought, wait, I'm part of the Olympic movement. And, uh, you know, I went through the system, and I had an abusive coach. Uh, and so – I should be able to make a difference in this area. And uh, Scott Blackman, who praise the good Lord is not there anymore, but Scott Blackman sort of gave me the runaround of like, oh, sure, Nancy, we'll listen to what you have to say. Oh my God, he had no intention ever of, of implementing what it was that I was talking about. He, um, you know, it was like, he was like, why don't you do some more work for us? Why don't you give another presentation? Why don't you give a speech over here and talk about it here? Why don't you like on and on? And um, so I realized after maybe two or three years, like this just isn't going to work. Like forget it. Like I've got to figure out another strategy besides trying to work the inside of the system. Right. And so then I started going to the media and saying, this is insane that, um, so the, the USA Swimming and USA and the United States Olympic Committee, their legal strategy was: this is not our responsibility. We don't do this. So, so there's this thing in the law called no duty rules. Okay, so uh, if I if if I'm taking you, Bobby Sue, across the street, and let's say so I know you, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I. Um, uh, and I know that it's a very dangerous intersection in a way that you you don't know and you couldn't know. And I know that you don't know. We're crossing the street. All I have to do is touch my finger to your shoulder and you will not get hurt and you end up getting hurt. You can't sue me because I don't owe you a legal duty to help you. Okay. Right. Now, let's apply that same thing that applies to club and Olympic sports is what USA swimming, USA volleyball, USA gymnastics, USA track and field, their legal strategy and the Olympic committee was, yes, there is this terrible risk out there called sexual abuse. And we know all about it. And we know that you don't know anything about it, but we're not going to help you. So when you get hit by this bus called a pedophile or by a sexually abusing coach, it's not our responsibility and you can't sue us. So they saved a ton 
of money in civil liability for using that legal strategy. So um, I started, I, I wrote the first draft of legislation that would uh, protect athletes from, uh, from sexual abuse in the club and Olympic sport movement. So these are, just to be clear, everybody, this is, this is 8 million children. This is about 16 to 20 million athletes. And this is also includes like the coaches and the volunteers and uh, the, the medical staff and the administrators and the club owners, right? Mm -hmm. So all told, this is a huge number. This is not 800 athletes every four years, right? Right. Okay. Huge. Sorry. So I wrote the first draft way back, um, I want to say 2012, maybe 2013. And um, it, it landed like you could imagine with Scott Blackman, like a lead brick. I mean, he he did not want this at all. He didn't want to spend the money because it would have impacted how much money he could be making in his pocket. <laughs> so um, so um, uh, finally, in uh, it, it took the gymnasts. Yeah. I mean, honest to goodness, but for the gymnasts, it wasn't just the fact that there were so many of them that got abused. It was the fact that they spoke up. It was the fact that the judge, let's give her a little shout out for her. Oh my God. The judge, yeah. yeah, wasn't she amazing? She she gave them the platform for them to have as much time as they needed, for them to be able to speak one right after the other, for them to address him, for it to be live streamed, for the whole country to get to be witness to the, the harm that sexual abuse causes. I think a lot of people understand when the whole Too Me Too movement happened, hopefully what people got out of that was, you know, this is just a part of women's lives. Sexual harassment and sexual abuse and sexual violence is a is just right. It's it, it, it's everybody. It's not just the most intimate pe person that you happen to know. I asked my husband, who is awesome, awesome. How many women have really confided in you? Their sexual harassment, their sexual assault, their violence. Like how many have really confided in you? And he said, like two. Right. So right. without the Me Too movement, your average person doesn't understand, has no context for how big it is for women because we're so embarrassed by it and so humiliated by it that we don't share it. And that's one of the reasons why now I share it, because not because I need to share it or because it's some you know amazing story. It's, it's not. It's that <clears throat> it's that everybody needs to know that this is a part of women's lives. And I encourage all women to let it be part of their lives. And in particular, who needs to hear it the most are uh, girls and women ages 15 to 24. That's the high risk time of being sexually assaulted. And what the reason why they need to hear it is they need to hear it from women that they admire, from women that they, that have the kind of lives that they aspire to. Mm -hmm. Um, whether they're, you know, gay or straight, or they want a great professional career, or they want to stay home, or they want to, uh, they want a spouse, or they don't want a spouse. Whatever kind of a future that they that they have hold for themselves, they can still have that same future, even though in the right now they're in the midst of trauma, they're in the midst of not being able to sleep at night, they're in the midst of feeling scared all the time, they're in the midst of some freaky behaviors. Um, they're in the midst of it right now. Go get yourself a catcher's mitt. Let somebody else grab hold of it. And, you know, and you can go and achieve anything it is that you want to. But 
but, but back to the gymnasts one more time, just how amazing they were. Uh, they, um, the, the, the uh, as soon as they started talking, uh, we did get this new uh, independent entity started called the United States Center for Safe Sport. And the, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport is, is kind of like the United States Anti-Doping Agency. Mm-hmm. It's an independent entity that is supposed to provide independence, A. Uh, so you just have too many cronies. It just That's why Mitch Ivey didn't get kicked out until we you know, literally threw a hissy fit. And two is uh, you get uh, you get expertise. It's unrealistic to expect that these these um, national governing bodies were ever going to create to hire people who have the expertise and uh, to you know to to actually get these coaches and and ne'er do wells out of sport. <clears throat> the same way that sort of a school gets somebody out of the school same way that a business gets somebody out of the business, right? We got to clean up sport for, for uh, athletes. And um, okay, so it starts, the gymnast starts speaking and the number of, of complaints and calls to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport go up astronomically. It goes up by a, a factor of four. Um, and it ha- and it has stayed there. It's like this huge spike. All of a sudden, when they spoke, it became okay for other women to share their experiences in this really vulnerable way. Not just to say me too, but right. I mean, they they to have so many of them speak allowed other women to be able to do that. And um, so, within uh, the the U.S. Center for Safe Sports, only been open for 15 months, and they've had 800 complaints of abuse. Wow. And 80, yeah, 80% of them are within the past year. Right. So these are ongoing sexual assault, sexual abuse complaints. Yeah. That's I mean, incredible. I, yeah. I don't think anybody had any idea how, how big it was going to be. I mean, the, the, right now the, the center is woefully underfunded and we've got to get more resources. Congress already gave it uh, they doubled the amount that it initially said that it needed. And the Olympic Committee has given double the amount that they were initially given. But right now, uh, USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, has, I think, triple the budget that that um, that the United States Center for Safe Sport has. Mm-hmm. You think of, right, well, okay, what's what, where do we value? I mean, obviously, safe sport is, or... Uh, clean sport anti- is important, yeah. yeah. Yeah, clean sport is very important, but... Certainly to have safe sport is, is uh, probably a higher order of magnitude. Nancy loves school so much that she went back and taught. But you don't need to teach in order to go back. Florida International University has 20 years of excellence in online education. And most of their master's degree programs can be completed in 12 to 24 months. FIU Online has a range of programs and services to support student success, including academic coaches, advising, and tutoring. And FIU's online programs feature the same top-ranked faculty as on-campus classes. Check out their website for more information at fiuonline.com slash podcast. That's fiuonline.com slash podcast for more information. I want to go to that spike um, because I think it's important to have a discussion 
um, about that. A lot of people, and by people I mean men, um, will say, well, these are copycats or these are people who are just getting in on the trend or want attention or da, 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 right? And they, and I think it's important to talk about the fact that when, when something hasn't been talked about, hasn't been safe to talk about, or there haven't been resources, it's almost like when you uh, start a new skincare routine and all of a sudden your face starts breaking out all over the, you know, all over because it's like purging all of the, the dead skin and bacteria that's like latent, right? And has been sitting there for however long. And then right. it gets better, right? And I've all, I have said since the beginning of the Me Too movement, I said we're in for a very rocky year or two ahead because uh-huh. what's going to happen is you're going to see all of this come out at once and then changes are, and changes are going to be made incrementally throughout this really tough period. And then you'll start to see real, you know, it, the numbers will come down because people will understand that this is unacceptable and that, you know, moving forward will be, you know, some changes. So do you mind talking a little bit about that from your perspective of, you know, why this number jumped so much? Yeah, I think those gymnasts, uh, I think what they what they did was they didn't lose any status or power when they spoke. Whereas a lot of women feel that they're so, again, that humiliation and fear and shame are, is so overwhelming that it keeps them from being public about coming forward. And so they sort of removed that part of the stigma. They were able, like Allie Reisman is a great example. Yes. She spoke, right? And so she's so, she didn't lose a stick of her gravitas as an Olympic champion. If anything, it made her even more of a champion, right? It, it added to her cachet and to her, her brand, if you will. I'm not mm-hmm. in marketing, but, uh, but you know, her, uh, it added to her. It did not detract from her. It didn't, it didn't belittle her or diminish her at all by being a victim of, of Nassar. And, um, and so that gave these women, these, uh, the world, a, a model for, gosh, I, I can do this. I can speak out. And, and not be diminished by by it. Um, so, uh, but let, let's let's talk about sort of false allegations. And uh, there's, um, I'm, I'll give you a, a link that I want you to put with this podcast mm-hmm. uh, that, that talks about how how can you recognize a false allegation? And I've given this information over to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. And I mean, everybody should have this. But you know, false allegations have been pretty well studied. Like people who make it up, people who who uh, who, right? Um, and uh, false allegations, of course, are very different from allegations that just can't be proven. Right. That, those are two different things. Okay. So, okay. So, a false allegation, <clears throat> um, the vast majority of false allegations, uh, the, the defendant never even knows that there was a false allegation about them or anybody. Okay. So, first of all, the first group of false allegations, uh, they don't name who the perpetrator is really what they're looking for is social services. So they go to the police and they report and they say they were raped because what they really need is healthcare. What they really need is housing. What they really need is a therapist. Okay, so that's one one group, if you will, and that's the most prevalent group. Another group is a group of uh, teenagers who tell their parents that they were raped in order to get out of some kind of 
discipline or consequences. So either they're pregnant or they came home late for curfew or something like this. And it is the parent that then insists on going forward with some kind of consequence for the person that, uh, that, that was, is alleged to have, that something happened to them. And usually those fall through. Usually the, the teenager sort of recants, uh, you know, usually pretty quickly. Um, so, so there's that group. And then um, there's a group that are people who have profound mental illness and they will make false allegations. They will say, I was raped by every member of the football team every single day for the last three years. Right. They'll mm-hmm. make these really crazy allegations. Right. So they have a, just a mental illness. Um, right. But but the, this idea that there are hundreds of women who are going to be making false allegations I don't know, to get attention, like th- those right. don't even register on the, on the radar. Um, somebody uh, said, um, how many of Bill Cosby's victims can you name? Oh, none. Oh, great. Okay. So can we all agree that they didn't do it for fame? Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, the only, the most, except for Rachel Den Hollander, for most of the victims, you probably could not name a single one of them other than the people who were already famous. Right. Right. They didn't get famous by speaking pr- proudly and powerfully and beautifully um, at, at the time of this hearing. That's not what made them famous. So, anyway, so, so there are categories and people who, do this work, need to be able to recognize what, you know, if something is true or false, there are, it's, you know, between two and, you know, probably at the outside, 8% of allegations are false. You do have to recognize what those are, but the vast majority are not at all false. Yeah. Uh, Does that that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I think it's important for people to hear that because, you know, it is, it is a myth that is perpetuated when it comes to sexual harassment, sexualized violence, um, you know, um, any any type of violence perpetrated by a man on a woman right. or, you know, this, you know, even between men or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, sure, sure. Like like Jerry Sandusky. Oh, God. Like what's going on in Ohio State right now. I was just an expert witness in the Torrance High School case where. Uh, you had a, a coach who was essentially using medical. Uh, he was saying that he was checking for venereal diseases on these on his athletes. And so he would take them into a room and he would fondle the genitals. <clears throat> right. So, no, <clears throat> it happens absolutely to men as well right. um, as women. And yeah, much the same way. But people will point to ready the one case that everybody has at the top of their mind. And that's um, the lacrosse case. Right. Um, do yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. And um, I think I think it's important that we just keep, you know, giving the yeah. salient points that you just did. Yeah. And I think we have to remember exactly how bad of an outlier that that was. So there are. Uh, I, so my husband's a, a judge. He was a solicitor general for the state of Florida. And I asked him and myself, how many prosecutors do you know who have actually served prison time? or how badly they treated uh, defendants in a case. I, he doesn't know any, none. I don't know any, none. 
except for the Duke. Like, that's how bad he was. Like, it's such an outlier that in our entire professional careers, we we don't know anybody. And I mean, ask yourself, how many how many prosecutors end up in prison for how badly they mess they they don't provide the other side with due process? Right. And and right. And so so number one, he's an outlier in that way. But the the victim fits the mold of what I just described. She had made numerous false reports in the past. Um and and was a little crazy from right she that's that's not the medical term again, right not the, yeah she had a, right? she had some mental had, illness issues going on issues. right exactly exactly so when you combine those two things uh, you know um, um, this, this is not the typical case at all right at all right what um I want to I'm gonna kind of switch gears a little bit can you um, talk about the Women's Sports Foundation and um, your involvement with that organization, um, you know, kind of when you started as an intern and then moving forward throughout your career? Sure. Um, well, I should say that I'm not associated with them at all anymore. And I, I, I don't, uh, I'm, I don't work with them and, and don't collaborate um, but I started my career um, uh, uh, wanting to, you know, I was trying to figure out like, where can I make the difference in the world? And I thought women in sports was where I could make my mark. And um, so I started uh, as an intern and I worked my way up. I was the president and then I was there, uh, went on staff as uh, their um, senior director of advocacy. And, um, but uh, I left about four years ago to start Champion Women. What so. what is Champion Women, and what is it that um, you know you do in that you know with that organization that you now have? Yeah, yeah. So Champion Women, we provide legal advocacy for girls and women in sports, and um, the 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 thing that the that we have is we don't take corporate money that won't allow us to talk on a certain issue. So if if somebody says you know, if they, it's a corporation like, um, let's say, I don't know, a shoe manufacturer, but you can't talk about uh, our manufacturing process that harms women in other countries, well, then we would not take that money. Gotcha. And um, so, <clears throat> but we, um, so we, we have a number of projects going on in the last, I don't know, say uh, year, we have spent a tremendous amount of time focused on this issue of sexual abuse in lots of different ways. Um, we've sent out 130 letters to try to get this guy, one volleyball coach, Rick Butler, out of sport. Um, and uh, we've done enormous num- uh, amounts of media dealing with um, uh, not only the issue, but in, in specific instances where we're trying to you know, get people out of sport. And, um, so we're, um, uh, um, we, we, uh, we, we have a, uh, we were, we, we rallied the, the, we have these different people who are involved say, in sexual abuse in sports. When you, when we, we would talk to the, the sexual abuse people, say Child USA or, you know, the, the, the National Resource Center for Sexual Violence, uh, the uh, National Women's Law Center, the 
all these different groups, like they were very involved in either incest or in school-based settings, but they really weren't involved in sport. So I used the fact that that there was this statute coming up to to get all these organizations focused on sport, right? That, uh, you know, there's a little, I mean, I, I, if even, even your listener out there, like most people know how high school and college sports work, right? They understand the structure. There's this NCAA and right. the schools are members and blah, blah, blah. Most people don't know how Olympic sports work. Right. How they're they're organized and structured and whatnot. And so, right, you got to break that down for everybody to let them know, here's how your organization can be an important part of of making sure that these millions of athletes and millions of children are safe. Like you need to go get in the space. Go, go, go. So we we worked with all these other child protection groups, as well as all the other sport leaders. We got numerous other Olympic champions to to understand what the statute was and then to sign on. We got um, uh, everybody from, um, you know, police athletically, uh, Special Olympics. Uh, we got, you know, just every group that I could possibly think of. I opened up my Rolodex and I said, everybody needs to know how the Olympic movement works, you know, see what this statute does. And because it can't just pass and it's going to be like, um, one of the things that the statute says is that everybody's a mandatory reporter. Well, if, the, if those club sport athletes and coaches and and volunteers don't know that they're mandatory reporters, the statute means nothing. Right. So, so you know, we really, and I had some great research assistants, uh, Sydney Rodkey and Erica Sexton gave me over a year. She was only supposed to give me like four months, but we, our organization runs on legal, uh, research assistance and, and uh, you know, mostly students. I can, because I was a professor of law for so long, I can typically get students uh, um, course credit for participating. And, um, but yeah, no, they boogied. They were, we all worked so hard to uh, get the statute passed. But even more important than, frankly, than just getting the statute passed was, you got to make sure that the public understands it. Right. And like, right. The, the statute says that, um, that, uh, an adult with power over somebody can't be alone with an athlete. Well, again, if people don't know that, then it makes no difference that it's on this piece of paper that sits up there in Washington. We've got to make it a live document and tell everybody. Right. And I think, I think for a lot of people, it's hard for them to envision how, something related to, you know, the Olympics, you know, might affect their child who isn't in all, you know, going to the Olympics. Right. But it's right. a trickle, it's a trickle down thing. So we saw with um, the gymnastics situation, twist stars. And, right. and that was just a gym that yes, a lot of elite gymnasts went to, but also non-elite gymnasts went to, and they had Absolutely. the same coaching and they had the same athletic you know, trainer and doctor and um, it, it forces people, organizations, even at the most basic or um, least elite levels to also adhere to those standards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I swam just on my teams alone in my eight years of being a world-class swimmer with probably a thousand other swimmers. They're all under the Olympic umbrella. Right. Right. This is not 
This is not 800 athletes once every four years. This is millions of athletes. This is, you know, we, we like to say, um, <laughs> not, not certainly not every coach is a pedophile. I had some of the world's greatest coaches, uh, and uh, but every pedophile wants to be a coach mm-hmm. because pedophile because coaches again they don't have anybody above them telling them what to do. There's no oversight of them. There's no other than the police, which, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to keep a kid quiet. Most children don't report for 17 years. I mean, it's scary for me as a parent to re- look at this research and say, my children probably wouldn't tell me if they were abused or right. if they were sexually, right? And so with that knowledge is, um, uh, you know, is, is letting the, the club sport movement, right? So think in your head, if, if even if even if the swimming pool or the track is at a school, but if you're not competing for the school, instead you're competing for the club, then 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 this statute is going to apply, and that's where the danger is is right there. Right. How um, I, I've I've read a good amount of things that you have written, and you know, Twitter obviously. Um, I think that's how. Uh, I've learned about you originally mm-hmm. a while back, and there are there's something that you've tweeted and retweeted in the last few months regarding um, kind of like the guidebook or handbook that is it U.S. Swimming puts out talking mm-hmm. about safe sport or telling athletes um, and their families about the dangers and how it's insufficient. Um, can you, can you tell the listeners and me and help educate me, you know, where does the education on, on, um, predators, um, need to start? Okay. The minute that this is over, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, tweet out, uh, our one pager that we wrote with child USA, Marcy Hamilton, uh, that that sort of gives the bottom line on all policies, but um, but uh, USA Swimming has done this over and over again. It's why we needed to start a separate entity. What they do is hire people from within sport rather than people who have expertise in that particular field. So they hired uh, a current coach. She is a current coach. Her name is Maggie Vale to put together the materials that are supposed to be quote unquote safe sport materials. And they're terrible. They're really off. They're they're literally a, like a pedophile would be very happy with these materials. It tells children to trust their coach to to establish the right boundaries. It does not say what it should say, which is uh, um, a good ethical coach will never be alone with you. No matter how good you are, they're never going to give you a present. They're never going to text you individually without including either your parents or the rest of the team. They're not going to friend you on social media. They're, they're, they're not going to uh, fat shame you and humiliate you. They're never going to throw something at you. They're never going to, um, um, they're, they're always going to allow you to be able to say no. If you don't want to be touched, if, you, if a workout set is too difficult and you think you're right close to injury, um, they're going to, uh, so there's, there's a, 
you know, there are a lot of different boundaries that are very clear. Coaches shall not have romantic and sexual relationships with the athletes they coach, regardless of age or consent, regardless of age or consent. So a 25 year old is just as protected as as a child, as, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein did not sexually abuse children. He was using his power as the gatekeeper for a, a whole profession. So that's what a lot of coaches have is they have that gatekeeper ability. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important that they not abuse that power and have romantic or sexual relationships with the athletes that they coach. Um, so yeah, no, so USA Swimming put these awful materials out and we are, <clears throat> uh, I wrote an article with uh, Danny Bostick Danny's a abuse a, a coach, athlete, sexual abuse survivor herself. Her abuser is in prison right now, and um, <clears throat> we looked at the materials, and and they say the, the they're, they're, I just I mean first of all they're sort of lost in a sea of noise. Uh, there's all this stuff about team building exercises and stuff that's all in there that really have nothing to do with how do you how do you how do you teach children, six-year-olds, six eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, how do you teach them how to be safe long before you get to the issue of good touch, bad touch, right? Right. How do you, how do you establish those boundaries and how do you empower the six-year-old, the eight-year-old, the 10-year-old to be able to go to somebody to say, hey, this happened to me so that um, they know who it is, like which parent to, re- to reach out to. Is it the is it the uh, the captain of the team who's hopefully over 18 years old? Is it the um, right? Is it the owner of the club? Is it the, like who do they go to if if any of the coaches or the assistant coaches or another teammate or some who do they go to? Right. Um, and right. So there, we 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 absolutely can keep kids safe, um, but what USA Swimming is doing is not it at all. We'll have, um, <clears throat> when I typically, <laughs> when I release these, they get released on a Wednesday. And then um, if I haven't been underwater because I'm the only lawyer at my organization, I will at the same time have a post on the website. So when the post goes up, um, we'll have links to all of these things along with um, some of the pieces that you've written uh, for the New York Times um, and, in you know, throughout the years, along with some of the video of you. Um, so that'll be a good one to, to provide. Oh, of course. Um, what, what is next? Um, you've gotten safe sport act passed, um, and you're pushing for more funding for the center. Um, what's next? Olympic reform. So the Olympic committee uh, the, the suits, if you will, or the corporation has usurped all the power over athletes. So it doesn't matter how many layers of protection that you give the athletes. I mean, look, Allie Reisman does not need quote unquote protection. She has all the empowerment when you talk about empowerment as meaning courage that one could possibly have. She has it, right? Right. And yet she was quiet while she was competing. And that's because she did. She, it's not that she needs courage. It's that she needs power. She needs to have the ability to speak without losing her slot on the team. USA Gymnastics has done 
a real number on the whole community, they have they have essentially said, well, because there is this subjective element within uh, gymnastics, we're going to quadruple the amount of subjective element, and we get to choose who the Olympic team is that is completely divorced from any objective measurement. So the more power that you give to the people who pick who the Olympic team is, the more um, the, the, the more obedient those athletes will be, the more compliant that they will be, the more subservient that they will be. And that's exactly what they got. Those athletes were not allowed to speak up about anything um, those athletes have a 62% injury rate and, and I'm sorry, 62% overuse injury rate, right? So there's that, there is that kind of injury where like, you know, you, you land wrong on a vault that, uh, you know, you land on your face and you break your neck and right. So right. there's no, there's the, the sort of the freaky kind of thing, right? So that's, that's true in, you know, in, um, lots of sports where you can have that kind of, but, but an overuse injury is a too many overuse injuries is a signal of shitty coaching. Yeah. Excuse my language, but that you should. Uh, we you know, we swear uh, here. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but a, a, a you know a coach and athlete need to have a dialogue with each other about how far they can take their bodies because every sport every sport pushes the body to the absolute maximum. There's a reason why swimmers swim further than a marathon runner will run. I as a sprinter swim further than a marathon runner will run because I could, because I was in water. I wasn't, I didn't have gravity that was going to injure me. All right. So every sport does that. And mm-hmm. so you have to figure out like, where is the fine line between getting injured and sick and pushing it to the absolute max. And there, there really is a maximum of what a human body can do. And so to have a 62% injury rate, that's what, um, that's the reporting of Scott Reed from the Orange County Register, uh, is, is a travesty. That's absurd that, that those athletes do have no relationship with their coaches to, uh, to let them know, like, where are they in training, right? Mm-hmm. That most, most um, oh, not most, all overuse injuries are a slow train coming. They, they, they happen over time. They start, uh, my shoulder started with just a click. It didn't hurt. It wasn't painful. But if I just got off of it, typically for just one practice, I could prevent it going, then I was okay for the next practice. So I just skipped that practice or I, I did something else, but that shoulder, I tried to keep my elbow next to my hip bone and it did not move for, you know, as, as long as I could. Um, and then like it, right my body would heal and I could then go further on it. But if I tried to say, Oh, no pain, no gain, then I most certainly was going to end up with my arm in a sling and cortisone shots and whatnot. So, so if you, but if you don't have the ability to tell your coach, Hey, I, my, the click is here. <clears throat> I can't do that. Then, um, you know, are you not going to make the team? So USA gymnastics has done a terrible job of taking over the sport so that, uh, the, the athletes are virtually powerless. And then that, that, what happens at the Olympic team has then infected its right. way all the way through the sport. Uh, in swimming, my coach couldn't advocate for me. My coach, uh, it was first or second Olympic trials. And if you got third, but you were a world record holder and you were the marquee and NBC really wanted you to be on there, to be the face of the Olympics, it didn't matter. You were not on the team. 
And um, as opposed to other sports where there is a lot of this subjective. These other, yeah. Yes. Yeah, sub, yeah. Subjective. So um, <clears throat> um, when the, when the sports act was passed, they wanted to have something in between what the Olympic movement had, excuse me, excuse me the Olympic movement wanted to have something what the NCAA movement has, which is zero power for athletes <laughs> and what, and what professional athletes have, which is, you know, they have a full on union. They have, regular labor law rights, right? So they wanted something in between that. So they said, we're going to create this athlete advisory council. It's going to be 20% of all committees, all boards have got to be consisted of athletes. And then the Olympic committee proceeded to take, to make that organization essentially powerless by a picking who they wanted to be on the athletes advisory council so that they got the athletes who were like very, again, compliant and whatever the, whatever the national governing body wants whatever the Olympic committee wants. And then two is <clears throat> by, um, by, by not giving them any professional uh, advocate on their behalf. So you're asking these pretty, an, an athlete is defined as within 10 years of their competitive career. So most like I would have topped out at age 32. Mm-hmm. At age 32 is I really sophisticated enough to bargain and negotiate with you Right. There's, right. There's no way, Bob, right, that I'm I'm going to be able to do that. Right. So so they need to have professional staff who can advocate for the interests of athletes and um, um, and um, um, and and there's anyway. So there are a number of structural things that need to happen to protect athletes, to give athletes a voice. Um, in addition, the, the Olympic movement is now run for the benefit of the pocketbook of the executives instead of this should be the, the country's best run nonprofit in service to the athletes in the United States of America. This is America's team and it should not be run uh, in service so that, you know, some people in Colorado Springs can get paid not only a million dollars a year, but also have another million dollars a year in expense account where they stay at the nicest hotels and they fly first class and they can bring their spouse to whatever they want. And they, right. That, that, that's not right. Meanwhile, the athletes are literally sleeping in cars. Um, so they need to flip those priorities <clears throat> so that the Olympic movement is in service to our Olympic team and our, and to the Olympic movement. Well, that sounds like a good next step. And a good next project. <laughs> I mean, it, it'll, you know, clearly be a, listen, the it, just like getting the NCAA to make any real substantive changes, right? The U.S. Olympic Committee is a monster that moves very slowly. And well, no, you know, no, no, Bobby Sue. No, no, no. We just had, we've had three sets of hearings now in Congress and the senators are aware that the Olympic movement is governed by a statute. And that statute can be changed. And if they change that statute, it will <clears throat> structurally give athletes more power. Then, then we can do it. I think we've, I think we've got about a year. Oh, well then um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do, you know, so because of my, what I do for work and, you know, career looking forward with career and stuff, I, I keep an eye on, um, the general postings of positions. And I have noticed um, a few um, at USOC 
that are athlete advocate focused. So I disagree. I disagree. Okay. <laughs> I, I, yep. Okay. And here's why I think they're adding more layers of bureaucracy onto the current system. Oh, okay. Most, yeah. Most of the people there who are getting way too fat off of the, the athletes, hard, hard, hard work, um, don't really, they think that this is a problem they can solve at the margin. So they think if they hire like somebody who's, you know, uh, an athlete advocate, that person still reports to the corporation. They're still part of the corporation. Right. Right. It doesn't, that does not change the structure at all. It doesn't give athletes a voice the way that they'll have if, if, you know, the way that your athletes have uh, with a union. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I get, you know, what we, you know, I, I, I think a lot of Suzanne Lyons, I think she's a very good listener and she's been very, very good about listening to, uh, I'm part of an organized group called informal group. We call ourselves the committee to restore integrity to the USOC. And she's been very <laughs> good at like reading our materials that we've been putting out. We've also been sending to, uh, Congress to the house and the Senate. And, uh, and in responding to them, uh, probably the, the biggest way that she's responded is the Olympic committee. If you listen to their, what was coming out of their, uh, February and earlier was we, the Olympic committee, we can't do anything to protect athletes. You, Congress, need to be able to give us that authority to be able to do that. And that was always, always false. So we wrote the legal memo to say, uh, here's, here's what the, the powers you have under the Sports Act. And here's the powers you have under the USOC bylaws to be able to make national governing bodies comply with, with, uh, with regular uh, things that would make kids safer. Almost everything that was in the Safe Sport Act, that federal piece of legislation, the USOC could have done on its own. We did not need to go through to have a federal law, but they wouldn't do it. I mean, it just makes me so angry. They wouldn't do it. So, um, no, you cannot like be tinkering at the margins. Hmm. Um, right, right now, the way that uh, the the CEO's pay is evaluated on is. 25% nonprofit, 25% on other sport governing bodies like the NFL, and then 50% based on a for-profit model. I mean, that's ridiculous. This is a 100% nonprofit. This is people give money in order to give money to the athletes. And so why couldn't every nonprofit say like, well, we want to hire the best, so we're going to pay them more than, than, uh, than people get paid in the for-profit sector? If you want to be of service to athletes and, you know, the, the Olympics are our country's opportunities. It's one of the few opportunities where we're all united and we're all together and we're supporting our country's athletes. And if you want to be part of that, then that's where you should work. And if you don't, if, if you want to um, get rich, then you need to work outside. Then frankly, you need to own a club because that's those <laughs> club owners are, are making a, a good penny. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, um, so uh, you know, I give her a lot of credit for listening to them um, when, when Suzanne Lyons then spoke at the hearing. She did not try to say that same routine, that we don't have the power. Congress, please give us the power. She acknowledged that they always had the power and that they did not use their own power. And it was not Congress's fault for giving them not the power. It was the USOC's fault for not using the power. And not making sure they knew about 
violent rapists, violent rapists that had criminal charges against them. And uh, they still would not do anything to help an athlete and ban that coach or that or that other uh, that that rapist. Hmm. Well, where can everyone follow you, uh, Champion Women, um, in all that you're doing? Um, so that's one of my goals for the summer is to get our website up and run up doing better. Uh, people can donate there, which we, especially this past year, we have really spent a lot on, um, this whole whole issue, but, uh, it's www.championwomen.org. So easy to remember all one word championwomen.org. And then we're on both Facebook and Twitter. And, uh, we, we, and on Twitter, we're I champion women because we want everybody to feel like they can champion women. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and, um, um, and then we, we send out newsletters. So when you go onto our, onto our website, you can sign up for our newsletters and they let you know where it is that we're going and all of our policies that are available and et cetera. So, um, yeah, I, I encourage people to sign up for those newsletters. That's our, our hardcore group. That's the people that we really rely on to, to help us. Great. And then how can people follow you? Um, I'm at Hogshead3AU. Um, if you remember from your science days in high school, AU is the periodic table of elements for gold. <laughs> so <it's kind> of <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> No, I don't remember that. So that's great. (laughs) So I'm I'm Hogshead3AU on Twitter. And then, uh, of course, on Twitter, we're iChampionWomen. Great. And uh, to close out, I do like to ask people what they do uh, by way of self-care. Exercise. Yeah, it's the nicest thing I can do for myself. It really, um, I, I do three things. I run, bike, and do yoga. And they, they do different things for me. So yoga really calms my mind down. Whereas uh, if I'm feeling a lot of like frenetic energy, um, uh, running does that for me. Another thing I do that I like to do is I do have these three amazing kids. And the more I get immersed in them, the less I can, the more I can, have balance and it's, I'm a, I'm a better lawyer because I can, I have this outlet. It's yeah. my, right. I have this other immersion, if you will. Um, and I, um, I like going back and forth between those two, but no exercise, exercise, exercise. Yeah. Great. Um, well, I want to thank you for being on and for taking the time. Um, I, you know, really think that what you are doing, um, and, the noise that you're making, um, it is good noise and, and really important. Thank you, Bobby Sue. I appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Nancy for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with her. Like I said at the beginning, I just feel like I got such an education on so many different things. Um, I have no doubt that she is going to continue being a change maker. And I hope that at some point in the future, I get to, uh, to help in her endeavors. Um, make sure if you don't already subscribe that you are 
subscribing to the podcast on Apple Pods, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, did I say TuneIn? I think so. <laughs> and RadioInfluence.com. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I love rating and reviewing other people's pods, and I hope you do it for me. Um, I love the feedback. Leave a little note on what you like, what you don't like. Just give a five-star rating <laughs> along with, you know, what you don't like. And, uh, you know, I'll work on it. Make sure also to follow us on all of the social media at LTPF Pod. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can always follow me at Bobby Sue. This was a lovely week. I'm feeling like I'm getting my feet back under me, especially after a, a rough couple of months here. So thank you all for your patience and for continuing to stick with me. I'll talk next week. Bye. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. We brought back a great conversation we had a few weeks ago. The number of reasons that kids play sport. We know that winning isn't even in the top 10 reasons they play. As a matter of fact, in the 81 reasons that Amanda Visick and her group found to be the top reasons that kids play sport, winning was number 48. What do you think number one was? To have fun. Number two, to do something I'm good at and to improve my skills was number three. To stay in shape was number four, to get exercise. Winning was number 48 on the big list. So when it comes to putting together a developmental program from the grassroots up, what are the priorities? Well, the priorities are getting our kids involved, helping them stay in shape, teaching them new things, exposing them to maybe sports and activities they've never seen before. So as they age and get older, they can start honing in and finding things that they're actually good at. Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.